Asama dudes, it is Monday, and you know what that means. This is another episode of Big Stick Energy coming at you live via the Out of Bounds podcast network. My name is Tori Anderson. Um, you can find me at Tori A. Alina on Instagram, and my co-host and best friend for life, uh, Renee McCurdy, at Renee McCurds on Instagram. We are two of five co-founders of the Womb Tang brand and also manage the Womb Cork meme page. If you aren't aware of our community, it's dedicated to increasing inclusivity, representation, access to resources, and community for underrepresented groups in the outdoor industry. And we have communities that you can join. Uh, they are more specifically for women, sorry dudes, um, because that is a community that has not been invested in or, uh, you know, I guess, female identifying uh, peoples and non-binary folk, all that kind of jazz. But yeah, that's that's what we do. Look us up, join our community. Um, if you go to our link tree uh, in the Instagram bio for at womb.tang, you can find a list of all of our factions and find your local faction. We are also taking requests right now to help develop our faction program and for new ambassadors. And we will be implementing that after the holidays. So. Keep emailing us if you want to get your girl gang going. Um, we do want to offer a trigger warning and content warning before starting today's episode. Uh, today's episode is all about eating disorders in the outdoor industry. So if you have any mental health triggers around that and this would be uncomfortable for you, we just wanted to let you know now before you dive into the episode. Um, but today, talking about this stuff today, you know, like Renee and I realized that this is not something that is talked about in the outdoor industry a lot. And there are a lot of really unhealthy habits with food uh, for athletes. And also the perception of what an athlete looks like is not often talked about relative to like body inclusivity and like ableism and disability and, you know, this idea of who looks fit, who doesn't look fit and how a lot of those narratives are constructed in the industry and in society altogether. So we dive into that stuff today. And I think this episode is important to have right before the holidays, because the holidays are not easy for a lot of people. I personally hate Christmas, like with a fiery passion. Um, Christmas music makes you want to pick my eyes out and it's just overstimulating for me and very social and it's just really hard. So, you know, chatting about this stuff, hopefully if you, maybe didn't realize that you struggle with some of those things because they've been normative in fitness culture. Um, or if you know somebody who is struggling, we go through some really awesome tips on how to kind of, you know, work through that stuff. And our guest today, Lauren McLeod, is a uh, super rad. She specializes in this and does heaps of presentations. And her focus is eating disorders, treatment, and how it's relative to the outdoor industry. Um, she's also taking on one-on-one -on -one clients right now. So if you resonate with something in this episode today and you want to, you know, maybe seek out a consultation session or learn more about her services, you can check her out at www.laurenmcleodrd.com. And we will link that along with her Instagram um, in the bio. She also gave some awesome examples of accounts that you can follow that are diverse uh, specialists in this area, or they have their own experiences with eating disorders. And, you know, I think our idea of eating disorders is not always inclusive. And we really try to unpack that a lot today. Um, also, you know, we look at how the DSM-5, which is the Diagnostic Manual, 
to diagnose a lot of these disorders is quantitative and not qualitative. So you might not meet the criteria to be diagnosed with a disorder, but there are still, uh, you know, a lot of qualified experiences that you might be able to get help with because you don't realize it's a problem. So yeah, we think that we just scratched the surface on this topic and we want to dive into it more with Lauren. So like I said, jump in our DMs, give us some feedback on things you want to learn more about, and we'll hit you with a fact-heavy uh, exclusive episode in the new year. But that's all I got to say. This is a new episode of Big Stick Energy coming at you live in three, two, one. So we have Lauren on today. Uh, why don't you start with just a little intro to you and what you do and give us the who's who's and the what what's. As Tori likes to say, the ABCs. I don't know. I don't know what she says. ABC something. <laughs> One plus two equals three. Quick maths. <laughs> Love it. All right. Well, hello, listeners. Um, my name is Lauren McLeod, uh, she, her, I'm a registered dietitian, um, and I'm technically, I'm a sports and eating disorder dietitian, and I specialize in outdoor athletes, and I currently live in the Numu territory, now known as Mammoth Lakes, California. I'm also a freelance writer and content creator, contributing to wellness and outdoor businesses, I run the Instagram account, The Mountain Dietitian, and the goal with that account is to promote evidence-based nutrition information specifically for outdoor athletes, but also to advocate for environmental causes and amplify underrepresented voices as best as I can. I see these all as connected issues within the outdoor community, so I want to bring light to all of them. I work with two incredible organizations uh, to see clients one-on-one. -on -one. Um, I work with Not Your Average Nutritionist, uh, which focuses on eating disorder treatment. And I specifically focus on working with athletes as part of that practice. I also work with Outdoor Women's Wellness, which is a collective of healthcare professionals specializing in the unique needs of female outdoor athletes. Um, I do like to say their slogan is all are welcome. So we see outdoor athletes of all genders, um, including physical therapy, nurse practitioner, bringing on a therapist. Um, so those are the organizations I work with. It's a little bit about me professionally. How did you get started as a dietitian? Great question. I actually started off uh, studying journalism and content marketing in school. Um, but I really wanted to write about nutrition, science, wellness, but I realized it would make more sense if I studied nutrition instead. So that was my original goal with being a dietitian. Um, however, as I started working more with, uh, or I got exposure in my internship to eating disorders, I also got exposure to sports nutrition. Um, I've been an athlete all my life. Uh, so getting that exposure, I realized I really wanted to pivot and be able to work more with clients. Um, but of course, I also just love wearing a bunch of hats. And so I also do that writing on the side as well. Yeah, I mean, I work with dietitians at the hospital, but it's a like completely different scope than something like working with outdoor athletes. So what kind of made you go into the more sports nutrition side of things compared to working more clinically? 
funny enough, I actually started off working in a hospital, primarily in the ICU for two years. That was super something. But um, in terms of working with athletes, your question was like what I what I do working with athletes, what my scope is. Yeah, and how, and how you got into that side of being a dietitian, like what sparked your interest in sports nutrition? Absolutely. So I, like I said, I grew up as an athlete. I grew up as a dancer, um, danced pretty much all the way up until college. And then once I got to college, that was when I had the opportunity to get involved in other sports, um, you know, like uh, snowboarding. I actually learned six years ago. I'm, I learned all of these outdoor things six years ago, like snowboarding, uh, touring, climbing, backpacking, mountain and gravel biking. Um, I absolutely fell in love with all of these things while I was studying nutrition. And I started to realize just how much nutrition impacts your ability to do all these different things. I think a lot of outdoor athletes can relate to that desire to do lots of different activities, to do them all the time. But if you're not properly nourishing yourself, then you can't progress. You can't do all the things you want to do. You'll end up just crashing. So that was kind of where my passion for sports nutrition came in. Um, at the time, one of the rotations I was doing as part of my internship was in eating disorder treatment. And I started to think, you know, I really care about the non-diet approach, like not having to be fixated on the way that you're eating. But I also really care about working with athletes. And I felt like there's no possible way to rectify the two. Um, and I think that's where my passion really grew, was realizing that you still can support athletes' nutrition needs without focusing on a diet approach. Yeah, right. I mean, I, I know that diet for me has been something that I always end up like coming back to. And it's tricky. Like, like you said, I, if you're doing all these sports, you really need to fuel your body properly. And when I worked as a ski patroller, just those long days and coming home exhausted, I was having a hard time actually like keeping my muscle on. I needed to get enough calories and it actually is like really hard for me to eat the amount of food that I had to eat to be able to do that and then be able to do my job properly and then have days off where I didn't just want to sleep. So, I mean, I think like every athlete on some level can sympathize with some kind of food issue that they've had in their progression, like real, like at the basis of all of it. Like we all have been there in, in some way or some form. For sure. Yeah. I think, uh, I think this is something that isn't talked about enough. And I think that the concept of like healthy living or athleticism usually comes with, uh, food nuances and nutrition nuances. And I think it's something that a lot of people look over, or they justify based on their lifestyle. But when you actually look at their eating habits, it's not always super healthy. And I think a lot of them have kind of been normalized in like fit fam culture. Like I, uh, there's this one guy in one of my groups, he is so uh, like pervasively obsessed with counting his calories every day to like a very, very specific amount. And I, 
yeah, I don't know. I just, part of me thinks that maybe that, that isn't super healthy, like that level of, but I, I don't know. I don't know enough about it. So I'm excited to hear what you think about all of these things. <laughs> yeah, of course. And Tori, you bring up a really excellent point that like, where, where do we draw the line between healthy eating behaviors, um, just trying to nourish yourself as an athlete, really focusing on performance and going too far, um, going into a place where you're actually inhibiting your performance instead of progressing it. And yeah, that's a really fine line. And I don't think enough people kind of know where that lies um, in the outdoor industry and in kind of sports in general, there definitely is a lot of focus. And there's this, this kind of myth that you have to look a certain way in order to be an athlete, or you have to eat a certain way in order to be an athlete. And that's something that that's a myth that I try to really debunk is that the most important thing as an athlete is that you are nourishing your body to meet your energy demands. And I think that's something that gets lost quite a lot um, when people are trying to improve their performance. Um, some of kind of the blurred lines, uh, one could say, um, the big one is when athletes start to assign morality to food. So it's like, oh yeah, this is good food and this is bad food. And I definitely teach a lot of people that food exists on a spectrum food does not have morality. I'm like, did, did that food rob somebody? Did it steal something? No. Okay. Well then it's not, it's not a bad food. You know, all foods fit as part of a balanced lifestyle, even for athletes, you don't have to stop eating dessert because you're an elite athlete. Um, and I think that's where things can get tricky is if you do eat one of those quote unquote bad foods and you start feeling this guilt about it, you have intrusive thoughts, or you compensate in some other way, like overtraining or changing the way you choose to fuel yourself the next meal. That's kind of a that's kind of a dark area to go. Yeah, for sure. I actually um, I was just trying to find a quote that I found yesterday. This uh, this uh, sociologist that I I was looking at some of his research on the concept of stigma and stigmas he says stigma is the servant of culture which is interesting so uh realistically any arbitrary kind of concepts that humans have created like the construct of money money doesn't actually have any value but we give value to it so it's like we do that culturally in different aspects and then you have like capital or like cultural capital for example which is Bordeaux's concept of attaining uh, different physical kind of cultural pieces all the way down to like your mannerisms, the way that you dress, the skills that you have, your credentials that help to classify you within a specific social class. And I think within being an athlete, like you said, that concept of like good food, bad food is so deeply ingrained in the culture that we start to associate those things that really have no place in food. Um, and we do that with people as well, like mental health, was in the DSM-5 shown as a disorder. And that medical model has pushed into a social model where we see it as deficient or defective rather than just different. And it's really interesting to see how we can like build and support those constructs in our head. Um, and with food as well, like I do that too. It's like, I know that I shouldn't eat 18 pounds of sugar every day, but I definitely really like sugar. <laughs> and it's like, I'll like 
you know, reach for it, be like, no, I shouldn't do this. I should have an orange instead. And it's like, there's obviously health aspects there, but connotatively being like, this is good. This is bad. That's yeah. It's not a good way to go about treating your body, I suppose. And you bring up a good point of the concept of health and health has so many different facets to it. So is there a health aspect to choosing an orange over choosing a chocolate bar? Nutritionally, yeah, there might be more vitamins and minerals in the orange that you're choosing, but then we also have to bring in the mental health piece. How is, if you're truly craving that piece of chocolate at that time, how is your decision to not allow yourself to have that chocolate? How might that impact your mental health over time? One time, maybe not. But over time, if you start to tell yourself, I want that chocolate, but no, 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 no. I can't have that. That's not good. That can have a really negative impact on your mental health over time versus if you allow yourself the full freedom to have a piece of chocolate here and there, it normalizes that food so that you don't end up later going crazy and being like, I haven't allowed myself to have chocolate for so long. I'm going to just eat all of it. Um, versus just kind of, you know, allowing yourself peace here and there. Sometimes you're going to want the orange instead. And I feel like that's the mental health aspect of eating is not talked about as much as the nutrition aspect, but they're both really important. Everything in moderation. Yes, please. It's <laughs> not too crazy. <laughs> uh, I'm not a huge chocolate person, but I love fuzzy peaches. So that's, <laughs> that's my kryptonite. <laughs> Delicious. Yes, I'm also not a chocolate person. I've been so stressed out. I actually ate um, a full bag of sour watermelons, which are my kryptonite, and a full bag of fuzzy peaches over the last like three days. So <laughs> here we are. <laughs> here we are. And sometimes here that happens. Are. And it's uh, just normalizing that piece as well. Like we can't be perfect all the time. And I think with athletes, there is this like, if I am not, I mean, just the whole part of being an athlete is a lot of striving for perfection, whether or not you're competing, it just kind of like fosters that desire. Like I want to be stronger. I want to be better. And in order to do this, I need to eat perfectly and train perfectly. And we're only human. We need to allow for the aspects of life that make us human. What would you say are some of the, like, I guess if you call it like red flags that you see in athletes who might struggle from kind of just even like we were talking a little bit about disordered eating, like maybe getting into that and, and what kind of red flags you would see that might indicate that someone is experiencing those patterns and, and I guess like, yeah, like describe what what that is and and how it manifests in in outdoor athletes absolutely and just as a beginning aside none of these are diagnostic criteria but these are kind of things that you listeners as athletes i feel like what's going to be most helpful is how can you identify if you or your friend might be struggling in a way uh, that is not just you know, trying to become a better athlete when you are starting to go into that 
gray zone. Um, so I would say number one is, you know, assigning those good and bad foods, especially if you or someone else is being really vocal, like, oh, no, I'm not going to eat that. That's bad. Or that's too many calories. or that's too many carbs. Just, you know, that's definitely a red flag to look out for. Um, if you're cutting out certain foods, like carbs, which just by the way, for all you athletes out there, your body needs carbs, like your body loves carbs, your brain on its own requires about 130 grams of carbs, which I wrote down some fun equivalents here. It's like four large bananas or half a loaf of bread. And that's just what your brain needs to function. That's not what your muscles need in order to function. And especially as an athlete and being able to train appropriately off the carb soapbox. But that's another big red flag for me is if uh, you're cutting out food groups, we really don't want that to happen. And like I mentioned before, feeling extreme guilt or compensating for eating those foods that you've assigned as bad. That's kind of on the nutrition side. Um, another thing to look at is physical activity. You should, I hate to shit. I always say like, don't shit on yourself. I tell my clients this, don't shit on yourself. Um, but it will be appropriate here, I promise. Uh, you should be able to train from a place of love for your body and not a place of hate. And what I mean when I say that is you're doing, you're, you know, lifting weights, you're skiing, you're mountain biking, what have you, because you love what your body is doing for you you're never approaching it from a place of, I hate how weak I, I am. I hate my body. I hate what I'm not able to do. So I'm going to force myself to train. That, that's another big red flag is if you're noticing those patterns come up. It's important to be able to take days off as well and accept like, you know what? My body's tired today. Doesn't matter when I last worked out, but my body is asking for rest and I'm going to give it that rest. I would say those are kind of the big, uh, the the starting big red flags for both you and for friends, anyone around you. One other caveat I want to add to that is if you do notice somebody struggling, um, please let them know. Not like, oh, I think you have a problem, but just being able to reach out your hand and say, hey, I noticed that, you know, it seems like you're not doing really well, or it seems like you're not going out and doing the things you used to do. I noticed you didn't have lunch or something like that. Um, Cause I have clients tell me all the time that they wish somebody had called out their eating disorder. You know, people will tell them later, um, not even just eating disorder, just like any difficulty they had with eating or training, just like to say, hey, I noticed you're struggling. Cause a lot of people really need that. Yeah, I think the concept of like telling somebody that you're noticing they're struggling, it's also important not to like, um, I guess character assassination is something that happens quite a bit. It's like, uh, you know, I noticed you're doing this and if you keep doing this, it's going to ruin this for you. It's like, no, like you need to approach it from an area of genuine concern and uh, acceptance of the individual because that character assassination can lead to internalization and deepening the problem or, you know, growing the problem. Because a lot of people tend to approach things from that point of like, 
uh, disability or diagnosis or disorder. And it's like, you know, the, the medical models in which we look at all of these different aspects tries to categorize people and stratify them. And that's part of stigma where stigma is the servant of culture. So if you create the other, then one is right and one is wrong. So their way of existing is not wrong. It might not be beneficial to them, but they're just different. And you need to approach it from that way when talking to them about anything that you've noticed, whether it's mental health or like addiction or any of those things. It's like understanding who they are, how they got there, their experiences are valid and not from the perspective that they are inherently bad, which I think is really important to talk about. And I think there's also just if you are looking at these mountain towns and what I've experienced from living in a mountain town versus being in more of like the city is part of the culture and the way that people act in mountain towns also makes it a really big gray zone for a lot of this stuff. Like when you're in a mountain town, I used to call it uh, Cochrane fit or not Co Cochrane is where I grew up, but um, Canmore fit versus Calgary fit is what I would call it at, at home. And when I lived in Canmore, Everyone there, if you said, oh, yeah, like I went for a bike ride or or for a run before work and and you've done 5K or, you know, like just modest amount of exercise, the next person over will be like, oh, yeah, I ran a half marathon yesterday. And there's the standard of extreme fitness in some of these areas where you can be still an athlete and be in very good shape. and the person next door is like so above and beyond as like a really um, elite athlete that it just like makes you feel like you're not enough. And I find that so much more in mountain towns where there are a really high amount of these like people who are always active, they are always outdoors and they value healthy lifestyle compared to the city where people in my experience, I'm like speaking from my own experience here, do have a lot more moderation and they do go out and, and they do still do active things, but it seems to me a lot more balanced a lot of the time. And it, it's two different worlds. And I, I would joke saying Camera Fit versus Calgary Fit because it's just totally different aspects of what makes you fit. People in Calgary would say, oh, you're, you're so unbelievably fit. And then I'd be in Camera and feel like I was completely like not an athlete at all. So yeah, it's like a completely different ball game being in a mountain town almost. That was a really long winded way of saying it, but yeah. No, I really think that specific example illustrates an issue really well that in mountain towns, it's definitely been super normalized to just constantly be trying to do as much physical activity as possible, train as much as possible, or always be training for something. Like, why do we always need to be training for something? You're still an athlete, even if you're not. And the other issue is, it sounds like a lot of people in mountain towns, they're not even aware of what they're saying or aware of the fact that if your constant conversation point is, look how much I'm doing, um, how does that change your perception of what's normal? And how does that impact how, what other people feel is a normal amount to be active? 
And I'm also like pointing this at myself because I just signed up for a 50 kilometer trail running race and I've never done an ultra marathon before, but I needed something to motivate myself. And so for me, like I've already done pretty much every distance up until um, I guess I haven't done a marathon, but I was like, well, if I'm going to do a marathon, I might as well do a 50 kilometer. And that's just every, every single person I've said that to that I work with in the city is like, you, why, why would you do that? That's so far. But then people in mountain towns are like, oh yeah, I've done one before. <laughs> it's, it seems wild to me to run that far. And yet here I am being like, okay, I'll do it. <laughs> well, good on you. I mean, that's, yeah, that's tough. Uh, I wish you all the best of luck in your training for that. I'm curious to know what you feel like. Okay. So I've just moved to Mammoth where I am now. So I'm like just starting to get surrounded by this where I lived before I felt a bit of it, but now it's like, it's just all around me. So I'm curious what you feel makes the difference between why mountain people and mountain athletes are, it's so much more of an issue than people in cities. I think it is just that like get out all the time. Like if, yeah, it, it's just always all the time. And then you're made to feel like if you didn't run 10 kilometers on whatever date that you aren't yeah that you don't fit in as well or you you get like this FOMO that if you if you aren't always out and you're not always doing something then you should feel like you're missing out but you're not really yeah I don't know how to describe it yeah I don't think I think there's a lot of like layers you have to look at yeah. like I know this is the first time I've ever lived in a city I just signed a lease in Calgary and living in mountain towns, like I've been really skinny my whole life. I naturally have, um, well, my mom says my abs are genetic. I Apparently my grandma had them, which I don't know. I think that discredits the work that I do a little bit, but I've had genetics that make me look really fit, even if I'm not at peak fitness. And being in mountain towns, especially somewhere like Wanaka, New Zealand, where there's a really high percentage of um, professional athletes because it's like the off season for the Northern hemisphere. And uh, there's just kind of this pool of people. And it's like that level of athleticism is the norm. Like this one, uh, this one chick that lives in Wanaka, New Zealand, which is where I was living is a, uh, she made this really funny video where it was kind of mocking extreme athletes in those spaces. It's like, yeah, I went and like ran up Mount Roy, which is like 16 kilometers straight up and straight downhill. And now I'm going to go skiing and then I'm going to go paragliding afterwards. Do you want to go rock climbing? And it's like all in one day where like I've done like sunrise hikes where we got up 3 a.m. to hike to the top of a mountain. And then afterwards, I'm completely pooped. And other people are like, yeah, let's go skiing. Well, let's go do it. It's just kind of like the aptitude is different. Um and then like, if you're working a nine to five job, uh, my, my friends in the city always call their fitness level nine to five fit because it's, you realistically can't get out and do it as much. And when I live in a mountain town, I'm also way more inspired to go like running or go for a hike or go mountain biking because it's more accessible. And in a city, it's just not accessible as much unless you want to go do city-esque activities, which I am actually not very comfortable with, which I am learning. Um, so 
yeah, there's there's just a difference. And also, I think the culture can sometimes be harmful. And we've talked about uh, like exclusion and inclusion culture in the industry in previous episodes. But especially as women, it's like if you can't perform to a certain level, especially where in ski towns, it's kind of like a five guy to one girl ratio. And like a le- that certain level of a performance isn't there. It's like that's what I think leads to that feeling of I'm not worthy. I know I really experienced that with mountain biking this summer, trying to keep up with my boyfriend's friends because all of them were so aggressive and they had so much more time on their bikes than I did because I was concussed for most of the summer. And it kind of like, yeah, like Renee said, it's this belief system. Like I'm not fit enough. I'm not good enough. And I've recently started working out again. And like, I never used to be able to do chin-ups, but now I can do like four in a row. And I was like, okay, maybe I'm not fit. I'm just like measuring my success based on their metrics when really I'm an individual and I should be based on my metrics. Yeah, that's a really excellent point you bring up is the issue of comparison. And yeah, it's good to hear everything that I've observed because, you know, it's stuff that I know about athletes, but now suddenly being surrounded by it because I've, you know, I've grown up coming to the mountains, but now being fully ensconced in it, um, I'm really seeing all these issues and I want to make sure that I'm appropriately addressing them. Um, The comparison game is definitely a big one. And another good point you mentioned was like the genetic aspect of body shape and tying in like, what is the definition of fit? What is there one definition of fit? Is it how you look or is it what you're able to do? And that's something I try to deconstruct as well, because actually there is a really huge genetic aspect to body shape and strength. So, you know, for example, even mentioning something like abs, people, you know, there is, of course, an aspect of how much strength training you're doing. But there's also a really big genetic aspect of, do you come from a muscular family? If you do, you may show six pack abs at a higher body fat than someone who doesn't come from a muscular family. And that doesn't discount your strength or your ability. Um, A lot of people, there is a concept called set point theory. Is this a concept you're familiar with? Not so much, okay. So weight point, set point theory is that we each exist within about a 10 pound range once you reach adult life where your body sits most comfortably. And uh, I do not want to go down the BMI rabbit hole. I might, who knows? Um, But BMI actually discounts the existence of set point theory, which is actually very well researched. So it's not like oh, I am this exact weight, this is where I am happiest, but it's like a 10 pound range of, okay, maybe when I start going to the lower end of this 10 pound range, I'll start experiencing more appetite. And if I go to the higher end, maybe I'll experience less of an appetite. And your body does comfortably exist within a range. It's not necessarily 10 pounds. Uh, But the issue is when people feel like they have to exist outside of that set point. And that's what can lead to really damaging behaviors. And some people are at a set point where they might fall into the quote unquote obese BMI category. Again, I the BMI, BMI is a horrible indicator of health, but I won't go too deep into that. Um, but people who exist in that obese BMI category might still, and there are quite a few who are just as strong and fit 
as active and active as people who might exist within the quote normal weight category. And that's something that I think more people need to realize is that fitness is not about how you look. It's about how you feel and what you're able to do. I think that is such an important conversation to have, not just in the outdoor industry, but across all fitness industries and, um, you know, like unpacking marketing. Marketing is a huge contributor to these biases and stigmas that we have. Like we've talked about the concept of popular culture and popular culture creates uh, like normative influences for how somebody thinks they should look to fit in. And if you actually look at uh, the patriarchy, capitalism, and then also into popular culture, all these different corporations through capitalistic models have influenced the way that women view themselves. So over the last 10 years, there's been an increase in body positivity movements, like approaching diversity with the concept of body hair, uh, like gender presentation, that it doesn't have to be linear. And I would say just even in the last like maybe five years, things have really started to pivot from more of a conformity kind of them like us and other perspective to more of like a individualistic perspective, especially in younger generations. But that that idea that there is one way to look that's fit is something that I want to like talk about my family right now, but I don't know. My dad's been listening to our podcast, but uh, I grew up in a very athletic family and uh, the concept of what is healthy, what is fit is something that has been ingrained into me from a very young age, uh, like being a kid. And like, you know, I've tried to approach with my mom because I think my mom is very fat phobic and um, she's a professional triathlete who, you know, if she didn't work out for a day, like she couldn't even take Christmas off when I was a kid. It was like, that was the most important thing. We had skim milk, um, like plain broccoli with cream cheese. We weren't, didn't eat a lot of salt. We didn't have a lot of sugar because back then the Canadian food guide was doctrine. It's like, you do not still out of the Canadian food guide. And now they're finding out that a lot of fats are super healthy and all of this kind of stuff. But when I've tried to like approach the concept of fat phobia with my mom, she gets exceptionally defensive. And she's like, I have a kinesiology degree, like X, Y, Z. And I was like, just because you learned it doesn't mean it's right. The DSM-5 has changed multiple times since the first iteration came out and has had more, uh, has had more uh, you know, disorders and diagnoses add to it. And the criteria for those diagnoses and disorders has evolved as we start to understand the human experience and start looking at it from a pathological or a quantitative perspective because there is a human experience tied to those symptoms. So I think that, yeah, the, the concept that we think it looks a certain way is one of the biggest problems in society and one of the biggest missions that we are trying to target, which is changing the idea that there is one way. That is literally what Tang is about. <laughs> also, the food guide is inherently biased because yes. there is funding that goes into it from dairy that perpetuates having those meat-based dairy type foods in the food guide and that's like a little bit of an aside but yes the new food guides are showing more plant-based options as well in there so it is changing but that's exactly what you said it changes so what we had in kids in the food guide is not what the food guide looks like now and it sucks that like that's what is pitted as the golden standard when actually the dairy industry is putting a lot of money into it to keep themselves in the food guide. Yes, yeah. 100%.
And like, you know, I guess I already uncapped on my family. So I can talk about some of the experiences I grew up with. Like at the beginning, you're talking about how we see food as good or bad. And there's that morality label. I remember being in the grocery store with my mom and there was, you know, a family. And I think being able to eat healthily is also an aspect of privilege because healthy food is not always affordable and education on healthy food is not always accessible. So for a family that maybe does not have privilege like my family did, they would resort to some of those foods. Also eating healthy when your mental health is bad is really hard. It is so hard. It is like with eating disorder uh, relative or, or not, like sometimes, you know, when my mental health is really bad, I can't even fathom cooking for myself. Opening up the fridge makes me overwhelmed. It's like, you know, there's so many different aspects of it. And that's what plays into that factor of like normative or othered. And it's like, we really need to target that. But walking around the grocery store with my mom, with her fat phobia and like her history as a professional athlete, she would look at all of these different like families that maybe had like Captain Crunch and like multiple things of Coke. And she was like, oh, their kids are so overweight. They need to change like X, Y, Z, like what an unhealthy person, like X, Y, Z. And she, I just remember being around it when I was a kid and it really shaped the way that I looked at people. But I also didn't understand the concept of being attractive or why these things mattered until I got into high school and there was so much emphasis put on the way that I looked as a young girl. And uh, yeah, that, that growing up with that, like, you know, my grandma would be like, oh, and I think she grew up with it as well. So it's generational trauma, but my grandma will be like, oh, you've got a little bit of a belly. And I didn't, I weighed 50 pounds in grade six. I was actually very far underneath the growth percentile chart. <laughs> it's like those kind of comments are really negative, especially in a heavily athletic family. And I think, uh, yeah, they lead to a lot of exclusion and isolation and loneliness for people that don't fit that mold in the outdoor industry specifically. But Well, thank you for sharing that, because I think that is a story that is not unique to you. I mean, I've experienced that in my family. I still do. I've just gotten really aggressive about calling it out, which, you know, you don't have to be. Um, but a lot of people experience that from their family because even a previous generation, this was not talked about. And so all of that diet talk is so normalized now. And so it really is up to us to start changing the conversation. Like, why do we have to comment on people's bodies? Why do we have to comment on what other people are eating? We are in a society now where we realize that we don't know what those people are going through. Why I think um, I was coming up with uh, responses to typical holiday sayings, like holiday diet talk, because, you know, we're around the holidays. That's when a lot of diet talk can come up. So specifically targeted at athletes who want to diffuse those situations. You know, one of the things that comes up a lot is like, have you gained slash lost weight? Your response can be, I don't know. How are you doing? Oh, that's a cute dog. <laughs> Yeah, I love that. <laughs> that is the best energy. That is the best energy. That is like a real life like block. It's like, nope, fuck you. Nope, no fucks. I, I, you are literally getting my colander of fucks. You see, like you are slipping right through it. I'm not going to respond to that. Yeah. Yeah. I also think the concept of commenting on somebody's appearance is just weird. I'm just going to say it. It is it's very super odd. weird. I'm it's, like, it's, yeah. Like it took me a really long time to like my body 
to like the way that I look, to feel confident in the way that I dress and unpacking, you know, uh, different systems in society and the patriarchal kind of capitalistic oppression of other groups and, uh, you know, the stratis stratification made me feel more empowered to be who I am. But if I like, you know, I make a habit to compliment a girl on something that she might be wearing. I'll be like, that color is awesome. And it's like, that is something that they have chosen to express their identity in some aspect. But commenting on the way that somebody looks, their body weight, their face, like, you know, plastic surgery is very normalized now. And I think doing whatever you need to do to feel good in your body is like your prerogative. Nobody else should be able to comment on that. But for somebody to be like, you are beautiful. It's like, what is the idea of beauty and how do I match that perception? Or they're like, like, I remember I went to my friend's birthday and there was this one really, really, really drunk girl. And you know, when girls are like making a comment, but it's like kind of passive aggressive and you can tell that it's like not super nice. I walked into this party mm -hmm. and she was just like, she was like, oh my God, you're so hot. You're such a skinny bitch. Why are you such a skinny bitch? And in my head, I was like, abort, mm -hmm. abort, abort, run away. I was like, I don't want to do, I was like, why are you commenting on this right now? Like, tell me I'm like smart or like, you know, that you like my like outfit. Cause yes, I curated this before I showed up, but like, I don't have control over something like that. And I was like, I don't really see myself as like a skinny bitch or like any of these things. It's just the whole concept of like looking a certain way to fit a certain model and then complimenting on it is so weird to me. So weird. It is. And, oh man, you mentioned the patriarchy. I have to jump on this very important tangent is that Our the body vibe. ideal, the body ideal is totally created by the patriarchy because here's why. Um, the patriarchy wants to keep women, we'll focus on, you know, women, female identifying individuals on this tangent, um, wants to keep women small and weak and focused on body image, focused on what they're eating so that they won't have the time or energy to surpass men and bring down the patriarchy. Duh. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> also, um, up until like, you know, maybe 20 years ago, not even a uh, majority of clothing is designed by men for women. And that has to do with lack of inclusivity oh. in sizing and shapes and all that kind of stuff. Or heels. Heels were designed by men. I don't know about you guys, but I have a tattoo above my left knee that says not broke, just bent because I did my MCL and meniscus and partially tore my ACL in it. And it's a joke, but I cannot wear heels. I also can't walk in them. Like I look like a penguin. But to put women in them and then to look at like these differences in like men's clothing and, you know, like there still isn't inclusive sizes in men's products. And like those product attributes affect the way that we see ourselves. It's like if I cannot get the clothing that I want to wear to make me feel good and express my identity, then obviously there's something inherently wrong with my body type. The things are associate. Do not just think they are simple. They are constructed societal norms and it is fucked up. Yeah, I mean, that's also another rabbit hole we could totally go down with the outdoor industry and outdoor industry sizing because it sucks. <laughs> and how are you supposed to feel like you belong in a space when brands don't even make technical gear that fits you? Absolutely. 
it's something that I was looking into before we came on. I was like, you know what? I also subjectively noticed the same thing. Um, for those of you who cannot see, um, I profit from thin privilege. Absolutely. I have never been discriminated against based on my weight. But for so many people, they have. And one of the main forms of that discrimination is not being able to find clothes in your size, and especially in outdoor technical gear. Um, nowadays, the average woman's body size in the United States is a size 16, but most outdoor brands only go up to a size 14. So what, what are they saying? That... We love numbers on this show. We love facts. That fact is... Facty, facty. I mean, it slaps, but not in a comforting way. No, not in a comforting <laughs> way. There's good slaps and bad slaps. This is a, a non-consensual slap. It's like, what the fuck? <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't know. Is that a weird way to put that? Potentially, no, that's great. what I think of a bad slap as. <laughs> but this, hey, this actually made me think about, um, like, Renee and I have worked in ski shops for a very long time. And in New Zealand, I remember, like, because of that limiting size factor, and also designers not making like clothing, like outerwear for real women's bodies that are diverse and considering like curves and like the, you know, where different BMI is held and like just everything. And there was this lady that came in and I think I was with her for about an hour and a half and we could not find a pant that actually fit her. And she was getting visibly upset. And then at one point I was like, here, let's try a men's pant. And when I brought her the men's pant, she was crying. She'd obviously had a lot of significant trauma around her body positivity, like her self-perception, um, esteem. And to be told that she had to move into like a size 14 men's pant was really hard for her. And her husband came out with me and he was like, yeah, she's been dealing with a lot, but this is actually kind of funny. And I was like, why is it funny? He was like, well, she's a psychologist. And I was like, okay, I didn't need to know that, but um, I also don't think that's very funny. I don't think trauma is relative to like your professional credentials and how you should be able to handle it. Like she is a professional in managing and helping other people. It's not always easy to manage your own stuff. Renee and I always give each other bitching advice, but then we're really bad at taking our own advice. And uh, <laughs> it's just the way the cookie crumbles, but the, the industry is so fixated on, yeah, fuck. I will say, uh, to hopefully reform this into a happy slap, uh, <laughs> I, I did find some brands that are very recently making more moves to offer more inclusive sizing. So specifically in the outdoor space, Marmot starting uh, this spring is offering, or this past spring started offering up to 3XL and a size 22 in women's, thank goodness. Um, REI, Prana, and Patagonia are set to follow suit. I haven't seen what they've done yet, but they're supposed to be offering some more inclusive sizing. Beyond inclusive sizing, these brands really do need to represent more diverse body types and people of color. Um, they're getting there, but there's one brand that's actually not an outdoor brand that is doing really, really well. So outdoor brands, Yo, please listen up. Y'all need to check out Girlfriend Collective. Um, have either of you seen Girlfriend Collective? No. Oh, no. Okay, so friend just turned me on to this, but 
for every article of clothing that they sell. Um, it's kind of just like casual active wear. Um, I'll just use an example. I was looking for a sports bra. And so I click on the sports bra. I'm like, oh, that's really cute. Um, they have five different models who are of different, they're uh, people of color, people of different body sizes, um, people, I believe they even have some people uh, showing disabilities as well, so that you can see with one product, you can click through and be like, okay, okay, this person, uh, they have about my bra size and they wear about my size clothing. So that's the size that they're wearing. And it just really, you know, for me, like I said, I've never experienced what your customer experience, Tori, but it was this incredible feeling of acceptance of like, wow, I see someone who looks just like me. And I know that that sports bra is going to fit me. And that sports bra, that fits so well when I got it because they took that opportunity. And so I can only imagine for somebody who does not normally see themselves represented in models, I can only imagine how that felt. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, like we've talked about um, changing popular culture for all these industries to be more inclusive. Realistically, if they can change that messaging and do it authentically, like you just mentioned, they're going to increase their consumer base, which means they're going to increase revenue. But authenticity is the main thing there. Like you can't just have like the tokenism like that is an authentic integration of body diversity, uh, like uh, you know, disabled, like diversity on every single aspect of the marginalized or othered scale of groups of people that they've incorporated into their actual business strategy. Like that is tangible. They took the, mon the money, they invested in it, their communication reaches out to the right people and it creates that kind of like trust value for these businesses where people will go back, they advocate for them naturally. Like you just talked about it on this podcast. If businesses can do that, there is not literally not a bad outcome from shifting and innovating their business models to be more inclusive. They make more money and we change popular culture and stop this othering in the outdoor industry. And that is a really good example. Yeah. Does it show like we, with all the different models, does it show like this person is wearing this size and they are this tall and, and weigh this much? Because I feel like that's the information that I would like to see on models where you are trying to figure out what size you are and to see a picture of someone and say, okay, they're five, six, they're wearing a size, whatever, and this is how much they weigh. And then you can actually compare to yourself and be like, okay, yeah, I think this would be the right snow, snow pant for me because that person has a similar body composition to what I have and be able to like look at the picture and have those stats. And I don't, I, I feel like that it would be a cool way for brands to go and true gear who Tori and I both wear their stuff right now. I've seen that on their website and it's so helpful. So helpful. Awesome. That, oh, that's so good. Cause I like really struggle to find like any outdoor brand that was also offering this because I would love to support those brands. Um, Girlfriend Collective, who I mentioned, I believe they list like the model is this tall and they're wearing this size of this clothing item. I don't know that they list weight, but I'm kind of glad that they don't because I felt like I got lots of information from somebody who was, wearing, who was just like five, six. And I look at them, I'm like, yeah, 
yeah, they look like me. This is nice. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm not saying that you have to include that, but I mean, just like as a, a general, like just a little bit of information to see, to know what size the model is actually wearing would be helpful because if they're wearing a size two and you're size eight, well, it'd be nice to know what that looks like on a person that's a size eight and then you know how it's going to flatter your body. Yes. I think like anytime I do online shopping, I always try to find the model's height, weight, uh, like cup size, pant size, like what they're wearing because the, the concept of like cut or design of clothing is also exceptionally arbitrary. Like Burton's style and cut for like, they're like, like, I guess, steezy fit, I guess you would say. Like I am an extra, extra small in it because it is freaking massive. So it's like to have that contextual application does matter. And I know that like I, I overthink every purchase. You don't want to see me purchase ice cream because it is the most complicated thing for me. But if I'm going to purchase something online, I'm literally going through their sizing guide and I'm measuring all the different parts of my body because like online purchasing when returns are not easy, especially if it is D2C, having that inclusivity in size dimensions would probably help people. But I'm also, I also am, uh, I also have, I have pretty privilege and I also have, um, minus when I wake up looking like Lord Farquaad in the morning, cause that does happen. Um, but I, <laughs> I do also have thin privilege. So like, I am not sure for like diverse body types, if that is something that everyone looks at, is that something that like businesses, does that make them feel inclusive or is it our numbers? Cause as we said, a lot of like DSM five categories for eating disorders, it is all, uh, it's all quantified. So like, what is your BMI? How much are you doing this? How much are you doing this? So do we need to remove that quantification and just focus on imagery? Like where is the line there for, to help the industry adjust? That's a good point. Like maybe people can let us know if that is helpful for them or not. Yeah. Do you have any yeah, perspective on that, Yeah, I would love Lauren? to hear. I would love to hear that from especially anyone with lived experience in this area. Um, yeah, please reach out either to this podcast or directly to me because I try to gather as many lived experiences from individuals who need their voices amplified as possible so that we can make sure this message gets shared. Yes. I also, um, I actually just thought of one more example. Renee and I have both gone through our internet warrior phases where our keyboard is a weapon and we are in the comments and it's a little bit aggressive, but we have adjusted. But I remember at one point, this girl I went to high school with, her, I don't even, it's like, I think her name, I'm not gonna say her name actually because we're on the internet, but she made a status on Facebook about how she didn't feel like working out and then she went to the gym and she saw somebody that was considered overweight or they had a bigger body and they were working out and she felt inspired seeing them and i was like that is so ableist and fat phobic it is ridiculous i was like why are you looking at somebody that you think does not fit a fit body type or is overweight and seeing them trying to better themselves as inspirational. I was like, why are you making this connection? Like, why is your inspiration based on like an external model for normative body types? And I, I put it in the comments and I got torn a new asshole by everybody I went to high school with in Cochrane. They were just like, you were overreacting, like blah, blah, blah. And then like, 
there's like this concept of like internalized oppression and it's not appropriate to assume that every single other group has it, but there are individuals that can have internalized oppression and, um, you know, imposter syndrome and, you know, do see that they are a problem. And that's very common in other groups or that their body type does not fit a normative thing. And I did have one friend who has been on like a weight journey for a very long time. And he was like, I don't see this as fat phobic. And I was like, you know, like listening to his experience, it's like, I can't devalidate his experience because I have never experienced it myself. Um, but at the same time, I still think Justine's perspective is limiting and to communicate that to others on a social platform means that she's validating other people that are inherently fat phobic and ableist. It's like to share those words on that platform will support somebody that you know, has that wrong perspective. I just think that whole concept is fucked up. And I think we see it in the outdoor industry a lot as well. It's like this person that weighs this much or looks this much just ran their first marathon or they hiked to the top of this mountain. And that is phenomenal when, like you said, you cannot tell how fit somebody is or what they are able to do based on the way that they look, period. Absolutely. I actually read an article recently that was about a larger body athlete in the outdoor space. Uh, it was, I believe it was an outside magazine and she was like, we don't want to be your pinnacle of inspiration. Like why, why do I have to be inspiring? Why, why isn't it normal for people of lots of different body sizes and people of color to be in the outdoors, you know? <laughs> because that is what we have decided an athlete looks like. And when I say we, I mean culture in general. That's what the folks that are in mountain towns that tell you that they ran a half marathon before they came to work think that an athlete looks like. It's what when, if everyone closes their eyes and pictures in their mind what to them an athlete looks like, Think about, like, I, I, I like to say, like, think about what it looks like, but think about what it doesn't look like. Because what it doesn't look like is all those things that you've been taught to think that it doesn't look like. It's not that those people can't be it. It's just that somewhere along the lines of marketing and culture, we've decided that that's not an athlete and it, it doesn't have to be that way. 100%. Exactly. I think that's actually, we've talked about this before. Anybody that's listening to this, that is a fun game to play with yourself. And it helps you start to realize how you've internalized a lot of those biases and associations to what normative presentation is supposed to be. So like I always give the example of when I walked into a hardware store and I needed to, I needed help. And I immediately was like, oh, like I'm going to look for a guy. And then when I caught myself doing that, I was like, why do I think a guy would be knowledgeable in this setting? And I was inherently like, oh, fuck, that's sexist as hell. And then I went and found a chick because I was like, I need to like not support this belief in my head at all <laughs> or justify it. But if you think of anything that has a gender norm or if you think of like, you know, like the concept of autism, for example, the stereotype is either Rain Man at like the high functioning end of the spectrum, which is ableist to actually categorize disabled peoples. Um, or the low end function of the spectrum, which is considered like nonverbal. But if you ask anybody to think of what an autistic person looks like, which is controversial because autism is an internal neurological difference, they think of a young white boy. And that stereotype disproportionately affects diagnostic rates for people who are autistic. 
because it is not only a male categorization and research has supported it. So if you look at that trend, you can also apply it to the outdoor industry. Presentation and ads have influenced it. Research has influenced it. Um, representation in the media has influenced it. And that creates a very stratified othering where stigma is literally the servant of culture. So I love that phrase, but yes. Sorry, I'm on like an academic dump right now. Maybe it's because I'm writing like five papers for school and I'm just all jacked up on research. <laughs> well, not to mention, especially when we started today, y'all were like, oh yeah, we did like a lot of research to make sure we were super prepared. And I was like, oh, I hope I was on your level. <laughs> we're all in an academic frame of mind. You betcha. I'm also just like a permanent information dump. If you give me like my my podcast or this podcast has given me a platform just to dump all the things that I know into people's ears. So I like just I have a weird propensity to keep up with <laughs> information. But your perspectives on everything, it, it was really interesting because these are things I think Renee and I have noticed in the industry for a really long time, but they are not commonly taught about. Um, or talked about in friend groups. And I think like, especially as women and also men, yeah, we, we need to look at why, if we are working out unhealthily, like what are we, what is our relationship to food? Are we assigning morality to food? All those kinds of things. And also how to talk to each other about it and be concerned about each other. And as a brief little add on to what you just mentioned about men, that's something I wanted to make sure was highlighted today as well, is that when we're talking about when you imagine what someone struggling with disordered eating doesn't look like, you're like, oh, it's not a man, right? Um, or not someone who's male identifying, but actually that is one of the most underrepresented groups along with people of color it's that they do also struggle with disordered eating, also struggle with overtraining. I actually, you meme lovers will love this. I saw a meme that was of this guy who was like hiding behind overtraining. And this other guy was like, oh, hey, like, what are you doing? And oh gosh, I can't even remember. I'm totally fucking this up, whatever. Uh, but essentially what the meme was explaining is that guys hide behind overtraining in order to hide their mental health difficulties. And, and the guy was not like mountain, he was labeled mountain town dude. And it's like, damn, it's true. It's true. Yeah. I mean, Anybody, you know, you have those guys that are like, feminism just means that they hate men. And I was like, actually, intersectional feminism, there's like white privilege feminism, which is like JK Rowling. Go look that up, everybody, if you want to. <laughs> she is like, does not, yeah, anyways, love Harry Potter, fuck that bitch. Um, but on another <laughs> note, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> that's the only good thing you've given to the world. <laughs> um, sorry. Um, but intersectional feminism actually believes that men are also uh, victims of the patriarchy because they are like the construct that men cannot cry. It's not normalized to share your feelings that, you know, suicide rates among men are way higher than women for a lot of these aspects because they're not allowed to like externalize those things and then push them down. And it leads to generational trauma and, you know, the concept of like, that the typical uh, individual who struggles with an eating disorder is depicted as a like fragile white girl is equally harmful. It's like, 
intersectional feminism wants equality for everybody, but it's looking at those imbalances systemically and a full spectrum of them for all other people. And men are othered as well. And they are still victims of the patriarchy. Realistically, the patriarchy just sucks balls and women should rule the world. Agreed. Agreed. That's it. That's it. That's that's the <laughs> mic drop. That is that is the tea for my life. Fuck the patriarchy. <laughs> mm, tea. Mm, tea. What is it? There's like that shred the patriarchy from Coalition. <gasps> I have that shirt. Oh gosh, I wish this was. Oh wow, I really should have worn that shirt today. Oh, and fun story about that shirt. Quick fun side note um, is that both my male partner and his friend were like i want that shirt and so i got them that shirt and they freaking wear that shirt and it's so good ah uh, yes freaking allies allies yeah. <laughs> allies. Yeah, that's like bonus points gold star gold star for you nailed it that's like when i see i was at lake louise last weekend and i saw womb tang stickers on the back of dudes helmets and i'm just like I was skiing by myself. I was like, should I go up and say hi? Because I don't have anybody to ski with. And that's like a calling card. Like, it's like, yo, Wilson, <laughs> ain't nothing to fuck with. And they're like, yeah, bro, let's go for a rip. That's kind of how I see it. But I didn't say hi because I was nervous. Um, but I love seeing it. Sorry, I just, I think my coffee just hit in. But um, <laughs> we have been talking for a hot minute. We do this every single time. But unfortunately, we do have to wrap it up. Uh, Lauren, do you want to maybe just let everybody know where they can find you? I think you share a lot of really valuable resources that might be able to help people dive into these concepts a bit more if they identified with a lot of what we talked about today. And uh, yeah, plug plug anyone. This is your time to do the one plus two equals three quick maths. <laughs> <laughs> Time to plug in the socket. All right. Well, number one, have to plug myself first. Um, I'm the Mountain Dietitian on Instagram, or if you want to get in touch other ways, uh, Lauren McLeod, RD .com. Definitely check the spelling. My last name is funky. Um, you can follow Not Your Average Nutritionist on Instagram, Outdoor Women's Wellness on Instagram. They promote all the same stuff that I promote, uh, weight inclusivity, and body positivity and nutrition for women, all that good stuff. Um, also want to make sure that I am plugging other nutrition professionals who showcase diverse bodies and diverse people of color. Um, so uh, these are all on Instagram, so you can check out their handles. I follow all of them. Uh, Black Nutritionist is incredible for talking about how uh, white the food culture is and the wellness culture is uh golden guts nutrition uh your latina nutritionist and in outdoor spaces other nutrition professionals advocating in similar ways i am dirtbag nutritionist the outdoor nutritionist and garden of eden rd i follow all these people so if you want to see their exact handles just check in there um yeah, I really encourage you to diversify your feed. Not like that's not an overused phrase at this time. Um, but thank you for allowing me to come talk to you about this issue. I really hope that this has resonated with you listeners. And I hope this can start important conversations as well. For sure. And that's like we're we're t just on the tip of the iceberg here. Like we're just starting the conversation. So maybe we'll have you on again later on and, and see a little deeper into it if, 
this is really something that is resonating strongly with everyone. And I think, like we said earlier, it's something that you can identify within yourself and within your friend group, even just that little bit, like it's there. 100%, yeah. It's there. Any type of kind of active space, I would say that you can see these concepts very vividly. Um, and not always on a disordered level. I think one thing we didn't talk about is like uh, subclinical traits. So when you don't meet those quantitative factors to meet a disorder in the DSM-5, those are things I think would be awesome to dive into maybe in like a part two and do like a question and answer and see how people feel about this. But um, yeah, also we will uh, we will get all of those accounts that Lauren just mentioned and we will make sure we include them in the bio for our uh, description of this episode. So they're easier for everyone to find. And uh, yeah, Lauren, I also just want to say you've got a great vocabulary. I love words. <laughs> and you kept like whipping out these words that I haven't heard before. And I was like, oh, it's so nice. Yeah, I really liked it. I don't know why I just made that sound on the internet either. Yeah, because it turned you on. And I'm so glad my grammar turned you on. I yes. can love grammar. So I would good. love to come back. Can we do this again tomorrow? I'll rearrange my schedule. <laughs> I wish, but I have to do a presentation and I'm in like my last week of university. So I'm about to like shut down, like delete Instagram. It's about to go introverted and get hella dirty because I just got a ride on to the sunset. Got one week. One week. We ride at dawn, bitches. All right. Renee, did you have anything else to add? No, I, I, I think that we have done a really great intro here to eating in the outdoor industry. Yes, and body positivity and lack of inclusivity in product design and how fucked the patriarchy is, which duh, that's like our brand. <laughs> a but, duh. A duh. <laughs> Anyways, we're rambling. We've all had 18 coffees and it's Sunday Funday. <laughs> Hail Satan, Sabbath, let's go. Okay, have a great day, everybody. And we will see you next week.